You are now listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Hi, everyone. I'm teaming up with the website Rewire.news to explore the intersection of their work and mine on a brand new podcast called Get It Right. On Get It Right, we explore pop culture through the lens of justice, and particularly reproductive justice. I'll be talking to critics and creators about comics, movies, TV, music, anything is fair game. You can find it now on iTunes or Stitcher to search for Get It Right or Rewire. Give it a listen and drop us a review with any ideas for what you'd like to hear us cover. See you soon. Hey, what's up? This is Morris Chestnut, and you're listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. This is Ben Jones with Yes We Code. You are listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. What's up, y'all? This is Amanda Seals, comedian, writer, and creator of Get Your Life. And you are listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Khaleesi! Hey there, this is Ava DuVernay, creator of Queen Sugar on OWN, and you're listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. I'm Cameron Bailey, artistic director of the Toronto International Film Festival, and you're now listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Hi, this is Daryl Bell from Planet Earth. Now, actually, I'm from a different world, school days, and, well, Chicago. There you go. I'm from there, too. And it's a joy and a pleasure to be here on the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. tuning in to episode 148 of the Black Girl Nerds podcast. My name is Jamie and I'm your host. This episode is aptly titled TIFF 2018 and Fashion and Sorry to Bother You. Two incredible interview segments. The first segment features the artistic director and co-head of the Toronto International Film Festival, Cameron Bailey. He sits down on a one-on-one with Janita about the film selection process, diversity in the kind of films that are presented at the festival, and he also gives us some kernels of information about being a film critic and being a film critic that's just getting started in the space. So this is the one interview you definitely want to listen to if you're ever interested in becoming a film critic and going to big film festivals like TIFF. And our second segment is an in-depth interview featuring the costume designer of the Annapurna Pictures film, Sorry to Bother You, Deidre Govan. She talks with Taja Wilson about her process in selecting the costume design, her career as a costume designer, and she goes over terms like there's a difference between being a costume designer and a wardrobe designer. So it's a very in-depth, specific conversation in relation to fashion and film. And if you are someone that's interested in that area, then trust me, you're going to learn a lot of information from Deidre. 
So sit back, relax, and enjoy episode 148 of the Black Girl Nerds podcast, TIFF 2018, and fashion, and sorry to bother you. Cameron Bailey is a Canadian film critic and festival programmer who is the artistic director and now co-head of the Toronto International Film Festival. The festival opens up September 6th through the 16th. I'm good. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I just saw the big announcement. Good. The big lineup. And um, so my first question is going to be, how did you, can you talk to me a a little bit about the process of of going through all these films? Because I know you you probably got a bunch of submissions. How did you like whittle it down? Can you talk us through that process? Um, Sure. So, you know, we we're doing this almost all year round. So from the late fall, we are tracking movies. We're talking to uh, distributors and sales agents and filmmakers and producers about what's coming for the next year. So we've been doing this for months and months now. Begin watching probably in the winter sometime, and then it really ramps up April, May, June into July, and we're just watching hundreds and hundreds of movies. Mm-hmm. And I'm traveling as well uh, to see films, so you know, I was in China, in India, in Paris, uh, watching uh, the Claire Denis movie, for instance. And just you know, as we as we get to see them, we're just we're making decisions as fast as we can, but sometimes we have to wait. Uh, till we see more, and some films we see right up until the last minute uh, before we announce. So it's a long process, and it's like turning up the heat on the stove, and then yeah. some, you just got to take the pot off because it's boiling, and it's time to announce. Okay. So you, you say you, you you said you watch hundreds and hundreds of films. How many do you watch before you know that you have, you know, the list? Is there a number? Do you have a number, or you just there's just a lot. Not really. I mean, there are some films you watch and you know right away that you want to invite them. So, you know, we, we saw Barry Jenkins's new movie. And of course, that's something we want to have right away and mm-hmm. talk to Barry mm-hmm. the same day that I saw the movie. And, um, you know, I'm so glad that uh, if Beale Street could talk is, is premiering in Toronto. Um, obviously, everybody's looking forward to his follow up to Moonlight and people are, have been discovering medicine for melancholy the last few years as well. And I mm-hmm. think um, I think that they're going to like where he's gone with this and adapting the James Baldwin novel. Mm-hmm. So that's one that, that's, that's just immediate, you know. And in, in some cases, you're watching and you just need to see more. Some films, you know, you've been promised you're going to see it, you're going to see it, but the, the filmmakers are still working on it. They're still editing it, and you can't see it until it's ready to be seen. And so you've got to wait on some other films until you see certain ones. So it's a kind of an ongoing process, you know, where you're trying to put together the best possible lineup. Um, and then some we, we really do not uh, invite until we're right up at the last minute. And we know we've got the best films we can find and a good balanced lineup as well, because that diversity is really important to us, that we've got a good range from all over the world. Mm-hmm. Typically, it's around 70 different countries represented in the lineup. Um, a good balance of films um, in terms of uh, gender parity, in terms of just the perspectives of the filmmakers. You want to make sure that it actually represents our audience as well and, and the people who are going to be watching the movies. I saw that um, – I, I was kind of doing my little my research on you um, <laughs> and your background and everything. and Because uh, I uh-huh. thought, you know, this guy's watching so many films this, through the years. You know, where did it come from? And I saw you were a critic. I was. So how did you how did you decide to go from being a critic 
of, you know, films and, and you know, watching and writing about them to taking a, uh, um, kind of a step back and becoming more of a judge of, you know, which ones we'll get to see at the film festival. Sure. Um, so my career as a film critic and as a programmer for TIFF overlap uh, for a long time. Uh, for many years, I was doing both uh, on a kind of a, uh, seasonal basis, um, and you know they're they're related uh, jobs and and skills that you need to develop as a critic. I love just watching movies, assessing them, thinking them through, writing about them, expressing my view, and all of that you have to do with a programmer as well. Uh, but you're also an advocate, right? It's mm-hmm. it's your job to also get out there and say, look, you know, people need to pay attention to this film. Uh, it, and for these reasons, the filmmaking, what it's saying, you know, who the filmmaker is and their story. All of those things are something that you begin to take on as a programmer and then as a festival director, where you're really out there trying to champion the films that we believe in um, at, as a festival and make sure that audiences pay attention. It's a very crowded landscape, and we want to make sure that um, you know films like Alfonso Cuarón's Roma, uh, films like Stella Maggie's The Weeknd, you know, the mm-hmm. really independent visions and perspectives are are still um, uh, there's still room uh, in in the, the uh, sort of the media landscape for for those kind of personal uh, perspectives. It sounds like almost a natural progression. Then <laughs> um, it is. It is. In fact, I, I love it because I, you know, the, the big difference is that you're connected to an audience when you're a programmer and when you're running a festival in a way that you're not in the same way as a critic. And um, and I love that part of it because the audience will challenge us as well. I mean, the Toronto audience is famous for finding those films that go on to win Oscars and, and be celebrated for, for, you know, months and years to come. Um, and I want to make sure that I'm putting the films that they're really going to respond to in front of them every year. So that's that's something that takes a particular uh, kind of skill that I've, I've uh, tried to develop over the last several years. Here, uh, I'm, I'm with Black Girl Nerds, and we have a lot of budding film critics, people who are wanting to get into, you know, writing reviews and, and criticizing films and, and, you know, because they love watching movies. So what what advice would you give someone who's just starting and wanting to, like, break into the industry? I mean, I think if you – the good news is it's it's both easier and harder, I suppose, in some ways than it was when I started out. Um, it's easier because you can begin – writing and publishing your views on films anytime you want. All you need is your own blog and, you know, you can do that with your, you know, in a day, you know, on a, uh, any kind of web platform. So, but what you're going to say and developing your voice as a critic, that takes more time. And I think that comes with just watching as many films as you can, not just the new films that come out, but older films as well, not just commercial films, but independent films, not just North American films, but films from all over the world. And the more films you watch, the more you think about them and write about them, and the more you force yourself to, to come up with a, an opinion and a perspective in your writing, the better you'll get. And um, and if you're any good at it, and if you've got a, a unique perspective, then you'll get readers, and people will gravitate towards what you're what you're putting out there. I want to ask about you know critics. They we've kind of you know taken a little bit of a hit this year. Um, uh, uh, well, critics usually take a bit of a hit, you know. Um, <laughs> do you think the landscape, uh, you know, for for critics is becoming a little bit easier, you know, well, especially for like for critics of color. Um, do you think it's mm-hmm. becoming easier for us to kind of get our voice out there and, and to be heard and to be accepted by the the um, the people, the audience at large? Yeah, I think the the big change that's happened, I'd say, even in the last year, 
is more people recognizing that a critic's perspective, one critic's perspective is not necessarily a universal perspective. Uh, and we see that happen so often when films can be uh, reviewed one way, uh, you know, based on the, the, the particular individual or individuals who are reviewing it, and then a different group of critics comes at it, and the perspective totally shifts. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, the background of the critics, their life experience, their particular critical perspective, all of those things matter, uh, and they are affected by who we are as people, um, by our racial identity, our gender identity, our sexual orientation, all of those things actually affect how we respond to films and, and as a result, how we write about them and the, and the, the opinions that we develop. And, you know, that we're opening more space for a wider range of opinions is only a good thing. It's taken a long time to get here, but mm -hmm. I think it's a good thing. And I'm excited by, you know, how the, the new range of critics at our festival this year will respond to what we're, we're putting in front of them. Um, we've been working um, to expand the, the range of critics that we have in our press corps this year. So we've got an initiative where we're working towards increasing the number of underrepresented um, critics by 20%. So I think that's going to deliver a different kind of coverage and a wider range of viewpoints, and that's, that's all good. Any advice for someone coming to the, the festival for the first time? I mean, I just the, the basics. We are a big festival, a lot of new films, about half of our films are world premieres. You're not going to be able to see everything, so, you know, go through the, the program and the schedule very carefully before you land. And, um, and uh, try to plan out, you know, your, your, your plan A in terms of the films you want to see, and then your plan B, because some of them, just, you know, things won't work out. Um, but Planning, I think, is the number one piece of advice I can give, uh, and then comfortable shoes. Comfortable shoes, I love that, love it. Oh, yeah, I, I just have one question about the, the safety due to the uh, the events yeah. of this week. Um, anything you mm -hmm. want to speak on about that, real quick? Yeah, um, look, we were we're all still uh, reacting to what happened on Sunday, and and I think uh, Toronto's. Uh, was shocked by it, but this is the world that many of us who live in cities are now uh, living with. Um, we've, we've been doing a lot to uh, increase security in the last uh, couple of years at the festival, and, and we're doing even more this year. So the number one goal is to make this a safe festival for everybody who attends, and some of that security you will see, some of it you won't see, but um, everyone should know that we are doing everything we can to make this a safe event. Thank you so much, and thank you for taking the time right. to speak to us. Thank you. Okay. Thank mm -hmm. you, Janita. You take care. You too. Bye-bye. That was the co-head and artistic director of TIFF, Cameron Bailey, talking with Janita about the upcoming film festival, which we are all excited to check out and cover some of the films there over at Black Girl Nerds. Before we get to our next segment, though, with Deidre Govan, I wanted to take a brief moment to give you a word from our sponsor, which today is Warby Parker. So Warby Parker, you probably have heard of them. And for those of you that have not heard of them, you need to check them out. Now, these are for my listeners that wear glasses. You guys know I wear glasses. If you have a friend or a family member that wears glasses, you may want to pass the word along. So Warby Parker is a great eyewear company. They actually have this home try-on program where you can order five pairs of glasses online. You can have them shipped directly to your home or your office. And I really like the idea of this being shipped to your office, and here's why. You go ahead, you get these shipped to your office, you try on the glasses, 
and most of these co-workers are looking at you all day anyway, so might as well get their opinion. And if you don't like Warby Parker glasses, if you don't like the particular frames that you got, guess what? You can send them back hassle-free. Yeah, that's right. Everything's free. So when they ship the box to you, there's no charge. When you ship it back, they come with a prepaid label, so no charge to you. Their prescription glasses start at $95, and this actually includes the frames, the lenses, and the coatings at that price. So really reasonably priced glasses. And here at Black Girl Nerds, we want to give you a chance to check out Warby Parker. So go to warbyparker.com forward slash nerds. That's warbyparker.com forward slash nerds. And after you head to warbyparker.com forward slash nerds and place your try on order, make sure you download the Warby Parker app from the iTunes store. That's right. They actually have a home try-on companion feature, which allows you to take photos, wearing the frames, you can stitch it into a video, and share it with your friends and, you know, see what they think of your new frames. So it's a really great engaging experience to try on glasses. And these are glasses that you're going to be wearing for a long time, and for some of us, we have to wear them all the time, every day. So check out warbyparker.com forward slash nerds. That's W-A-R byparker.com forward slash nerds to get started with a free home try on and hopefully you're going to find your perfect pair of glasses today now back to our segment with Deidre Govan talking about costume design on the film Sorry to Bother You Deidre Govan is an accomplished costume designer for film and television currently residing in New York City She's carefully crafted a robust portfolio with over 20 years of professional experience in film, fashion, and design industries. You can currently see her work in the summer film, Sorry to Bother You. I, I always, you know, I came to New York, you know, I, I knew fashion design, being a fashion designer, really was not what I wanted, essentially, just because I had gone through the program and I just was in love with history. I was in love with theory. I was in love with design and creating, and I was in love with film. Mm -hmm. And pretty much I knew earlier on, you know, that I was going to leave the fashion industry after, you know, finishing, you know, college. And I had an opportunity to, you know, with a family friend who introduced me to the industry, introduced me to someone who was the business representative of one of the unions here, okay. and started in theater mm-hmm. and on Broadway, dressing uh, several different shows and utilizing all my skills from you know sewing to tailor making to aging, dyeing, and distressing costumes, and then learning all the tracks of all the dressers of the shows. Okay. So it was. Definitely what I'd say an incredible entry into this business because theater is very special and that was my base and uh, you know I just saw things come to life live every night which is pretty incredible. From that, I had an opportunity to do an international tour overseas, and I costumed an opera. So I was in a little bit over 20 countries for a year, That's um, nice. doing that um, all over all over Europe, and it's fantastic. Loved every minute of it. Got a call 
back here from New York from a friend of mine who was doing a TV series, and um, they were looking for a set costumer, and that TV series was New York Undercover, and that was my direct entry into film and television um, from doing a episodic TV series which is very fast paced, fast moving. You know, this was a series that, you know, was gonna be groundbreaking and all it had to offer and you know, I jumped in, all in. And uh, from there just worked my way up. I started in costumes and it's just very important for people to understand the difference between, you know, costume costumes and wardrobe. You know, as wardrobe, you know, you're the technicians, you are the, the ones who make the machine go after the looks are designed and put mm -hmm. together and created. And we're the ones who are on set um, taking care of the actors, dressing them in the right clothes, all those details. Okay. And it's, uh, it's important because I think people get it very confused. And so, mm -hmm. hi. So, so when did you realize that you wanted fashion or costume design? I did want fashion. That's yeah, no. the thing. It wasn't, it wasn't, I mean, I love fashion. Fashion is very, to me, fashion and film has a very distinct place in space and what it means. Okay. And it, it's inextricably linked, but it's important for me, from where I come from, that people who are curious about the clothes, because I think the curiosity isn't just about the clothes, it's really about the person wearing the clothes. Mm -hmm. They're enamored with that. And my, my base and what's important to me as a designer is the story. Okay. It's about crafting a character. It's about an actor completely being transformed when they put on that costume. Mm -hmm. And I really try to stay true to understanding who that actor is as a person first and that character that they want to become. Okay. So my passion and for everything is you know, the story. And it all starts with research. The research is the core. It's, um, you know, how I build, you know, my, it's my process. Mm -hmm. And I think that's also something that um, a lot of people miss out on is that, you know, costume design, it's not about, you know, labels and brands and finding, you know, the clothes and the store. It's about really coming from a perspective of if it supports the story. Okay. And, and I think that that is, you know, for me, one of the most exciting parts of the process because you're you're starting out really discovering and understanding, and you're having creative meetings with the director, and you're you know sitting with the production designer, and you're just really discovering yeah. a whole you know world. Yeah. So how so what is your creative process? Like, do you research? research. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Research, research. I mean deep, deep research. Mm -hmm. It's the most important thing. Um, I'm a news junkie, so I kind of read a lot and pay attention to the news, I think, too much. But it serves you well because if you take, you know, sorry to bother you, you need to really understand what's going on in order to understand this story and how relevant and timely it is. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that was so engaging and exciting for me mm -hmm. is that this was a story that was telling you know the truth in a very avant-garde unique way 
mm-hmm. and um, you know taking past history events and also what was going on in the here and now and yeah. what could be going on in the future because it is an alt universe you don't know if it's past present or future mm-hmm. that's the whole point of the story yeah. so for me I, I think for my process the starting point in order for me to be articulate is to know what's going on okay. in the world okay. and uh, yeah um, so as a black woman mm-hmm. have you found it harder absolutely okay. absolutely um, that's something that I don't uh, shy away from yeah. I, I you know I am a woman I'm a black woman and mm-hmm. I'm an educated black woman and I know this business I've been in it for a very long time mm-hmm. over 20 years mm-hmm. so for me it wasn't handed to me yeah, it wasn't it, I had to yeah. literally work my way up mm-hmm. and in spite of myself and you know didn't have mentors didn't have you know a costume designer who said hey yeah fabulous come with me mm-hmm. um, which is very sad yeah. you know it, when I look back on it it's very sad um, I have a lot of designers that I did work with mm-hmm. and did um, assist or I was doing wardrobe at the time so I was the set customer for a lot of you know the, the leads of film and TV but I I think that's a you know what drives me now at this point in my life is that it's very important to recognize those who are serious, to recognize those who really want to be a part of this business and help them along. And that is my give back Mm -hmm. because I feel that you only, you know, there's plenty for everybody. Mm -hmm. And it's just very important for me as a woman of color to be very representative and be true to the craft and be, you know, the person who's going to say, hey, Here's an opportunity. Are you interested? Mm-hmm. Are you serious? Are you dedicated? Are you, or are you bedazzled by the lights and the glam and what you think it is? Because it's not that. Mm-hmm. So, thank you. Thank you. Do you have so, any advice to anyone who's like, um, I, you know, struggling and trying to become a designer? I'll be honest with you. <laughs> And I'm, I'm just going to keep it real, education. Yeah. I know people don't want to hear that. I think it's a day and age where everybody is so seduced by what they see in social media. And that I think that's something that just gets really lost. And for me, I don't feel, I feel wholeheartedly that everything, all my education, my academic studies, you know, my really delving deep into, you know, the process of filmmaking, understanding lighting, understanding you know, architecture, understanding history, mm-hmm. you know, theory, all these things serve you. Mm-hmm. So the hard part for me is when I have people who are very interested to come into the business and they just automatically think it's just, oh, I just want to be a costume designer and they don't know what they're saying because yeah. they don't really know what that means. Mm-hmm. And what that means to me is probably old school to someone else who's like you know, coming <laughs> up, but what it means to me is, you know, supporting the story. It's not about me. You know, it's about, you know, the collaboration, the craft of filmmaking, mm-hmm. you know, and what you're doing with the director's vision and how you're going to bring it to life. So I think all of my experiences from my education, from my, you know, being in this industry, and it hasn't been consistent for me. I mean, I've left this industry not once, not twice, three times. Mm-hmm. That's just how hard it is. 
okay. and then when you totally give yourself over and you're dedicated and you're really clear about your vision because you have to be in order yeah. to sustain it then you, you turn around and you're like okay now I know what my purpose is now I know why I'm here and then you're in flow you know that's, that's how I feel it's about being in flow and you know being in the right place at the right time is also a part of it but also you know, it just has to make sense. Okay. So, am I making it? You, you are. You <laughs> are. You are. I get it. Like, you really have to learn your craft and just put your all in it. I think yeah, a lot I mean, of people think. It's you, not about. To me, it's not about. Um, I'm not the one of those designers who's going to tell you, you know, all the biffy piffy fairy stuff. I mean, yeah. I'm very deep. Mm-hmm. And my purpose is probably sharing this with you, but I'm not. I'm not that designer who's going to sit there and talk about clothes and fabulousness. Which is not what I want at yeah. all. I'm glad you're not one. I'm just not. You know, and I, yeah. I'm, I'm really, I really want people want, I, the, the craft of costume design has been so, I have to say, marginalized because of what has happened in the industry. Mm-hmm. People see it as they can just fall out of bed and become a costume designer. Mm-hmm. Because they're interested in styling. Mm-hmm. It's just two separate things. Mm-hmm. They do come together at certain point in times, but the process and the methods are different. Mm-hmm. And for me, I always see styling as an opportunity to tell a story that is that is temporary. Because it's okay. usually something that's in print, and you're telling that story to the person who is seeing that visually. Mm-hmm. But costume design, you're living with it for two, three, four, five months, six months, maybe nine months at a time, mm-hmm. depending if you're doing a film or um, a TV series. Mm-hmm. So the methods and the process of you know creating are different. But okay. what was your process for starting about you? Oh my god, my process for Sorry to Bother You was reading the script, um, flying out of my chair with excitement, and then immediately going to research. Mm-hmm. I loved researching Sorry to Bother You because it was so close to me personally. Okay. Um, you know, going to school in Brooklyn, being in Manhattan, I had friends that were these characters. I had friends that were dressed like Detroit. I was, mm-hmm. you know, dressed like Detroit at one point in time. But I also was very connected to the political touch points of Oakland and the politics of gentrification and seeing what was happening and what had happened and what it would what what happens to people when they you know forsake their their I guess um, when they give into their impulses and you know get overtaken by how to get money uh-huh. you know anyway. I'm sorry to bother you it was also just boots I mean our director He's a wealth of knowledge, a wealth of information. He's an entertainer, but yet he's just so um, in tune with the community because he's had these experiences, you know, as a telemarketer. He's had these experiences, you know, in a band creating, you know, stories on stage. So, yeah, I mean, and again, Boots was the driver, and it was exciting because. You just fall in love with his vision mm-hmm. because you see it is just so unique 
but yet spot on in a lot of ways. It's very smart, and it's kind of like that. I can't. I can't explain it. It's just that you you have a feeling that this man is saying something that's very true, but it's layered in so many ways. And when you pay attention to it, you're like, oh shit. Okay. This is, how did you really come across the script? Like, um, my producer that I had worked with before uh, had sent me the script. And I was familiar already with the coup, uh-huh. just from the 90s. Yeah. And she sent it to me, and then one line, it said, kill it. Okay. And I read the script, and I was on a plane, and I lost my mind. Mm-hmm. I was like, this is amazing. Mm-hmm. Because I felt it was an opportunity to tell a really incredible story with the clothing, but also mm-hmm. it meant something. It had something to say. It was so different. Yeah. And I swear if I read another script about Brooklyn hipsters or I was yeah. gonna just lose my mind. So yeah, it was it was exciting. It was a great read. That's good. So when you went to Oakland, because mm-hmm. you did go to Oakland to mm-hmm. kind of do your research, mm-hmm. um, can you like describe the passion that you saw and then how like in particular what you know, For me going to Oakland was a deep dive into the community. Um, our production office was right, you know, in the center. Mm-hmm. Um, I took time to visit a lot of shops, hung out in coffee shops, mm-hmm. sat down. I'm an, I'm an observer. So my process is like this, mm-hmm. which is why I like to sit down. I people watch. Yeah. You have to be. And that's how I was really able to, you know, take a step back and see the intersections mm-hmm. of a lot of different styles, a lot of ways that people wear their clothes and what they were trying to say or not say, and also just the whole cultural melange that Oakland, you know, is was really exciting mm-hmm. to me. Um, I was fascinated by how you had homeless, you know, shanty towns mm-hmm. on a full like underpass. And then you go around the corner and there's this like hipster restaurant wow. right in the middle of it. And people are hanging out, drinking, smoke, like doing this. Mm-hmm. And it blew my mind. It was, it was, it was intense. Um, spent a lot of time trolling, I mean walking, parking and walking many different street corners. Um, my assistant, you know, my team mm-hmm. pointed me in the direction of a lot of vintage stores. This movie was not about labels, it was not about mm-hmm. what designer they were wearing, it was definitely, my intention was to give it, you know, a complete baseline of being thrifted and vintage and a mix. Mm-hmm. So being able to mix the high and low, finding pieces in one, one boutique, and then I could go two or three miles, mm-hmm. 20 miles out, and then find something else. Mm-hmm. So... It was definitely taking my cues from observing people, mm-hmm. you know, spending time checking these people out, um, you know, just watching, just watching. Yeah. And then um, going into the stores, the boutiques, you know, vintage marts, you know, off the beaten paths, you know, finding these, you know, people who had curated vintage finds. Mm-hmm. That was what I did. So I know you also have, there were um, Afropunk and Afrofuturism. Absolutely, that was... Aspects of her style. Can that, you go into what is Afropunk and Afrofuturism? And 
Well, for me, Afropunk and Afrofuturism, my experience of it being here in New York was the starting point for me. So, and then really seeing how it was honed in Oakland was exciting. Um, a lot of those cues was, for me, about individual style and how to make it your own and saying something without speaking in terms of clothing and silhouette all of those details played into every character, not just Detroit. It was, yeah. it was Cassius on down. Um, so my excitement is that I knew very clearly in my research as I articulated to Boots from the very beginning, you know, this is Afro-surrealism, this is magical surrealism, this is Afro-punk, this is Afro-futurism at its finest. Mm -hmm. And that's where I completely went in deep and started my creative process of both of these characters. And then also the political, you know, aspects, you know, looking at pieces, you know, as, you know, activism, you know, what I consider making a political statement in such a way. I mean, each character had its look, its signature look, and that was very core. It was very key to me telling a story, you know, without, without I guess, making it all about the clothes because the costumes had to work in concert with the production design. So we worked very closely together to make sure that our visions were in balance with each other. Um, the production designer and I, I would show him my boards, he would show me his, I would look at the sets he was thinking about, it, the locations, and I would make sure that my look and what I was creating made sense mm -hmm. in that world. Yeah, that was one of my questions. Um, to like the outfits that she wore, was it based on it, actually all the characters, but mainly Detroit because I feel like her style kind of stands out the most. Mm -hmm. um, did they? Did you like plan them out strategically yes. based on the scene, based on who yes. she was talking to, who, who else was Every, in the scene? Like, everything is done. When you read a script, you have to do a breakdown of the script, so mm -hmm. it's all about those details of what the scene, what the action is in that scene and what mm -hmm. it's called for. Okay. So every piece of Detroit's clothing, whether you know it was shopped by me or Tessa found it, okay. was strategically plotted so it would make sense within the arc of her character mm -hmm. and the flow of the story. Okay. Um, but that's how you understand if the message of what she's wearing is making sense for that scene. Mm -hmm. Same thing with Cassius. His arc changes when he's in the green plaid suit and the pink shirt. Yeah. That is his complete transition period from, you know, Cassius to a power collar. Mm -hmm. And those suits are the starting point of when he goes into high def, technicolor, high color profiles. There was no language for how he would transition. Mm -hmm. Sat down and thought about what would make sense and presented it to Boots and presented it to the production designer. Mm -hmm. The space that we had was the space there was nothing else. It was concrete, white, modern. It was up to me to show the delineation between the world of Regal View and the power collar world. Mm -hmm. And I did that with my choices of color okay. for both Cassius as well as the background actors. Okay. Yeah, now that I'm thinking, mm -hmm. I saw the movie twice actually, mm -hmm. so thinking back. His style in the beginning was more, I guess, muted and more. It wasn't too out there. It was. It's not it was, supposed to be. Yeah. He, his look was very much like his mom could have still dressed him. Yeah. His pieces were vintage from either his dad or his uncle. Mm -hmm. You know, but he has. And very few people caught this, but 
is Nix's pattern more intentional? Okay. Because it shows things not connecting. He's still trying to find himself. Mm. He's not concerned about his look. Mm-hmm. If it works, it works. I'm putting it on. It looks good to me. Mm-hmm. It may look weird to you, but it's what made sense to him. Okay. When he goes into the transition of being a power collar, that green suit was a suit from the late 70s. But the way he puts it together, you know, it's kind of like, oh, wow, it looks a little dated, but you know what? It works. Yeah. And so that's, that's the beauty of his character. And then his interpretation from seeing Mr. Blank you know, Amari Hardwick's character, he's interpreting what he thinks he should look like as a power caller. Okay. Because for him, he's making a statement. Mm-hmm. And his statement is very loud. It's not necessarily on point. Mm-hmm. But there's just something that is a little bit kind of like, okay, you almost got it, but you don't quite got it, but okay. Okay. Who was your... Um guess favorite character to style. I can answer that because they, they're all great. Yeah, they're all not great. not the person, not like the actual mm-hmm. actor, but just no, the characters. characters. Yeah, I love them all. Mm-hmm. Really, because each of these characters, you know, I could relate to. I can see, you know, I can see aspects of these characters, you know and several of my friends yeah. that are conscious or have, you know, are in this mindset of like, okay, where am I going and what am I doing and how do I do something of value and make sense? Mm-hmm. You know, and that's what, to me, was just really engaging is because these actors who brought these characters to life, they were so full of, I guess, certain aspects I saw with friends, you know, today I have a friend who's, I have several friends that are very politically active and are, you know, anti, you know, capitalist and, you know, in the very basic form of vegan and all of that. Um, I think if I break down the characters, each one, you know, I've seen aspects of Steve Lift's character in people, you know, the, the total how do you say, lack of respect for other people's cultures or um, selling someone something that may not necessarily be in their best interest Mm -hmm. to get ahead or being a seducer of sorts to make it all sound really great, but when you get there, it's not. Mm -hmm. Um, Same thing with Mr. Blank. I think he's the emissary of Steve Lift. He's a seducer of sorts. He's meant to bring people in. But you really aren't getting the straight answers. You're not really getting clarity. Um, I'm probably babbling. Just no, like you're not. so much. You're I mean, not. You just, I want it to make sense. <laughs> <laughs> you're not. No. Um. Tell me, let me ask you a question. In terms of um, black girl nerds, what do you feel from the feedback that you've gotten a lot from a lot of your readers? What are they most entranced by about the film? Oh, from my the article. Mm-hmm. Oh, you read it. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, 
I think mainly, I think people wanted, they knew like her earrings meant something, mm -hmm. but they just didn't know what exactly they well, meant or what, they didn't really think about it in terms of what's going on in the scene, what is she really saying, like sure, mm -hmm. obviously the earrings that said like bury the rag deep in your face, obviously mm -hmm. it's something mm -hmm. deeper to it and it's sending a message on its own, mm -hmm. but what else? as it's saying. So I think a lot of people are just had questions about what in that and Well, I think the the big thing about it is and you know, the earrings have taken a life on its own. Yeah. It's just really important for people to understand that they were written into the script. That's everything. Mm -hmm. Great. Thank you. Thank you. They were written into the script and it was also another aspect where I had to sit down and really figure out how these earrings were gonna be made what they looked like and how they really all made sense. They could not be out of balance with the rest of her look. Okay. And it was important for me that, you know, as everyone knows now, Boots had a really dear friend of his who is a graphic artist and so he and I sat down and he showed me some um, typography. And I looked at the, and I was just like, okay, bet. Okay. That's really cool. Let's roll with this. Yeah. And so after he sent me the type fonts, I sat out and really trying to figure out how to build this, how to make these, what they looked like, you know, how they were going to work with her costumes, mm -hmm. all of that. And found an amazing laser cut artist mm -hmm. who cut them out for me. I picked out the fabric, the materials, you know, the acrylics, the colors, all of those details. And then, based upon the looks that I was creating you know, for the film, really made sure that the earrings and the look stood together and were not out of balance. And so, the message, it's kind of like, it was written in the script, you couldn't get away from it. Mm -hmm. So it's a direct action where you see murder, murder, kill, kill. Mm -hmm. To me, that's like I'm starting my day, I'm gonna murder it, I'm gonna kill it. Yeah. You know, things like that. Then going forward with Bury the Rag Deep in Your Face, that's mm -hmm. that's a whole symbolic to a Bob Dylan song. You know, there there are all these details that Boots already had within the story mm -hmm. in his mind. I just need to make sure that it visually made sense. Okay. And that was my role as a designer, mm -hmm. to make sure it made sense. Okay. Do so, you choose like the films that you work with based on um the story or does it really just depend? It's just, it, I don't think I'm in a position to choose. Okay. I think I, I'm, I read everything. Mm -hmm. I like to read a lot of different scripts because I like to see what's out there. And, you know, for me, if it's something that is not in line with, you know, my values or mm -hmm. you know, what responds to me, I don't take the project. Mm -hmm. I, I, I'm in a situation where it's very important that I'm doing projects that mean something and have something to say and that are of substance. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, I'm just doing it just to do it and doing it for the sake of the, the you know, paycheck. And there's no joy in that. Mm -hmm. You have to be able to wake up every morning at 5, 4.30 in the morning and love doing what you're doing for that specific time mm -hmm. that you're, you're due to do it. So for me, 
I was in love with Sorry to Bother You. I was in love with the words on the page. I got the vision, I understood it, and I wanted to be a part of building it. And that's, that's what did it for me. So to me, it's all about the story. Which is what gets me excited. Yeah, I mean, the story is great, but I, I do think the fashion is a big part of it because mm -hmm. it is, in a way, how Detroit and all of the other characters are expressing themselves and kind of they're contributing to the story and what the story is saying. So, absolutely. Yeah. I love, I mean, when I really sat down and thought about all these characters, I was like, wow, it was so visually, mm -hmm. you know, I, the visuals are, are, are big important part of this. Mm -hmm. of this film. Absolutely. I just really like that for any film mm -hmm. or any show. Yeah. Is that you know when you're designing something, you want to make sure that your voice is you know clear. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So for me, I just—it sounds crazy. None of it was contrived. I have to be honest. It was really—I was functioning from my instinct, my experience. And the expertise that I had, you know, my academic knowledge. That's I utilized every level of everything that I had to, you know, create this world. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that's for me. That's the key point mm -hmm. is that I used everything, all my toolbox, so to speak. What else have your readers been commenting on? I think her earrings are really a big part of it. I think it, there's this there. I think people just want to know what's the bigger message that the, the film is saying mm -hmm. because there is a lot that yeah. the film is saying regarding to you know the workforce, society, society, just society, society in general, the Trump situation, yeah, mm -hmm. um, gentrification, mm -hmm. uh, everything. So I think the main thing is just trying to figure it. out. And why do you think that, um, and this is not a, I don't mean, no, it's supposed to be a dumb question, but why do you feel that people are so enamored with um, the earrings? Are they enamored with the earrings because they're worn by Tessa Thompson? Or are they enamored with the earrings because this is something that they've never seen before and it says something and it's like, wow, powerful? Yeah, no, I think that's the exact reason. The earrings are, are saying something. And mm -hmm. I think what makes you just even more intriguing is not really knowing what exactly. I'm always curious if people are going back going, let me look this up, what this really yeah, means. Yeah, I did when I first saw it. I was like, wait, I want to know what it means. So even the shirt, why mm -hmm. does she wear that shirt? What, what's, what's her style? What's up with her style? Where did she get that from? What's her influence? So, just wondering. That's actually a really nice photo. I know. Too. <laughs> so it's like, I, you know, I photograph and I see things and I am engaged. If I had the courage, I would often... I would love to go up and ask someone and say, hey, why did you make that? I'm fascinated by the choices that people make. I'm fascinated the choice of someone to what they put on that is so, you know, off the grid because there's there's a conscious decision. It wasn't like I just threw clothes on. Yeah. You know, there's a conscious decision that I'm going to walk out because I'm saying this today. And that's what's exciting to me. So each one of these characters, you know, from Detroit on down, I mean, Steve Lift, you know, the way he dressed, 
was saying something. Mm-hmm. The way he dressed was totally saying, I'm entitled. I'm a white boy. Mm-hmm. I can dress this way. Mm-hmm. And I can rock a caftan too because guess what? I probably own that territory. Mm-hmm. Or I probably, you know what I mean? It's just that kind of sensibility. I think when I look at this, it's like, it's taken a lot for me to really talk about a lot of this is because I'm very private mm-hmm. and how I create. But in designing these characters, it's forced me to be more articulate with my rationale and the choices that I made as a designer of this film. Mm-hmm. And when I was doing it, I was just creating. I was in that moment. I wasn't thinking about anything after. I wasn't mm-hmm. thinking about anything before. I was in that moment. Mm-hmm. And really just, you know, using every visual resource and reference that I could think of or something that I saw that resonated with me that just, you know, mm-hmm. spoke to the characters. So what's, like, the main message that you took away from the film? There's one thing mm-hmm. that you can say you, you that resonated with you or stood out to you. Um, what message? Fashion as uh, activism. Mm-hmm. You know, def- definitely, you know, definitely, you know, clothing. What you wear... You can say something without saying it. Mm-hmm. I think that's you know what I walk away with. Also, you know, I just keep coming back with substance. You know, mm-hmm. meaning it has to be meaningful. Yeah. You know, I for me that's what I take away. And I I think I also am enjoying. I've had you know friends. You know, I've had some trans friends who have come to me and they were like, oh my god, I want every piece. I want that caftan that yeah. Steve Lift had. I want every piece of Detroit's clothing. Mm-hmm. I want, you know, they, they've just really blown me away. And I think I just walked away from this. This movie is about individual style on a whole other level. And that for me is what I was really aiming for is that obviously, yes, everybody's an individual, but this is expressive. This is totally taking, you know, what you feel, your thoughts and your process or how you get dressed every day. You know, I think I think it's just about how you, you know, individual style. There are certain things that we as costume designers do to bring disparate parts together yeah. that aren't necessarily seen because sometimes they're not clearly fleshed out. Yeah. yeah. So for me, I think when I coming up with questions to ask you for this interview. I was thinking more what, why did you choose to make them wear what they wore? Like, what is it saying about them? But I didn't really think too much about their backstory. And like, you know, I guess, I guess I should have because their backstory is a part of why they dressed the way that they But her overriding deal is she, and Cash says it in the film because she's made her mark already in the gallery world. Mm-hmm. So, for me, the choices that she makes are that, in some ways, of, um, she's unbound. You know, she's not uh, forced to fit into a mold because she doesn't have to. So her decisions are going to reflect that complete freedom to just be. Mm-hmm. Whereas Cassius is dressing almost in his own it's 
almost like his own uh, prison. Right here. Thank you. Know, he's creating his own. You don't go away. He's creating his own prison. Mm-hmm. So in that way. So, you know, I, I just, I don't know, I kind of go deep. You go left. That. Thank you. Um, so I, uh, yeah. No, thank you. The Black Girl Nerds podcast is produced by Jamie Brodnax. The opening theme song to our show is written and performed by Samus. Various instrumentals are performed by Samus, Sky Blue, and Shubzilla. You can find various episodes of the Black Girl Nerds podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Audioboom, Google Play Music, and Spotify.